Hello and welcome. You are listening to Desperate Acts of Capitalism, a podcast about money, marketing, and how it all goes wrong. Join us on our magical journey through a wonderland of burning money. I'm Evan Swope. And I'm C.T. Kelly. And today, strap on those thinking caps, uh, because t- this week's episode is going to be a little more uh, heady, a little more educational. Yeah. getting a little bit more into the, uh, the economics of how all this works. Sweet. Now, if my phone will load, we can start. All right. So, in February of 2008, four MBA candidates at the Wharton School of Business wondered, why weren't glasses sold online? It wasn't a completely random thought. One of them, Neil Blumenthal, had run a nonprofit called Vision Spring that trains women in the developing world to give eye exams and sell glasses. Blumenthal emailed three friends, David Gilboa, Andy Hunt, and Jeff Rader, in the middle of the night, proposing that the four of them start an online eyewear company. All responded, yes, immediately. Quote, we couldn't sleep because we thought it was such a good idea, Blumenthal says. We have to sell eyeglasses. I haven't slept in four days. (laughs) We need to. They sealed the deal the next night over uh, uh, over younglings at a, a local bar, but classmates were skeptical. Quote, a lot of people told us, you'll never be able to convince people that they should be buying this online, says Gilboa. You'll never be shit, kid! <laughs> the feedback inspired the idea of letting customers try on five pairs of frames at home for free before buying anything, and it was a hit with virtually everyone. Quote, That's when we really felt confident that this idea was going to work, Gilboa says. Two years after Warby Parker was hatched, GQ contacted Blumenthal about a story. There was just one problem. Warby Parker wasn't a company yet. Hmm. The website was weeks away from launching, and the co-founders were still finishing up their MBAs. Quote, Being the optimists that we were, we thought that we'd have the website up and running before the article came out, Blumenthal says. They also assumed GQ's March issue would come out in March. When they learned that it would hit newsstands on February 15th, the co-founders realized they had a new launch date. (laughs) So on February 15th of 2010, WarbyParker.com went live. Within 48 hours of GQ uh, dubbing the company, quote, the Netflix of eyewear, the site was so flooded with orders for $95 glasses that Blumenthal temporarily suspended the home try-on program. Oh, jeez. Launching the website so quickly meant that the company hadn't included a sold-out function, so customers were placing orders long after inventory had run out. (laughs) Oh, God. The bad news, the wait list was 20,000 people long. (laughs) Oh, God. The good news, the company hit its first-year sales target in three weeks. It's always the thing where it's like people say, like, shouldn't they be happy that, like, they're meeting their goals, but at the same time, like... Scaling your company that quickly just sounds like terrifying. Like it's, you all of a sudden have like a hundred thousand orders and you like have no way to fulfill them. Like what do you do in that scenario? We will get into that. Just yeah. you wait. Alright, cool. Quote It was this moment of panic, but also a great opportunity for us to provide awesome customer service and write personalized emails to apologize and explain, Blumenthal says. Huh. Quote that really set the tone for how we would run customer service. Customers sent emails asking to come to the company's offices to try on glasses. Warby Parker did not have offices. Yeah, they're running this out of their dorm room. So Blumenthal invited customers to his apartment. (laughs) Oh, God. The demand gave the co-founders the confidence to open shops within boutique retailers and launched the Warby Parker class trip, a store built into a school bus that visited 15 cities. (laughs) Like, how fun is that? Yeah, that's so creative. (laughs) Well, just like... Like, I wanted to... I originally wanted to do this episode about, like, Warby Parker, but then I hit this piece of information that was like, oh, because they didn't have offices to visit, they... Blumenthal invited customers to his own apartment. It's like, okay, this guy actually cares. Yeah, well, I always hear, like, stories of founders who, like, they'll, like, put their personal cell phone number, like, on the product during the initial run, like... Right. They're, they're like they're going to actually respond to people like they actually care because they're invested in it like that's a good sign of like right this isn't just like some 
dickhead throwing money at some stupid idea like they're building something and they care about it it's like the rainforest cafe guy turning yeah. his into his whole ass house into a rainforest cafe. Yeah, like, like putting your livelihood where your where your company is, like putting your your passion where your or your I don't even know. It's not putting your money where your mouth is. It's like putting your back and sweat and tears where your mouth is. Right. Right. It's like truly backing up this business decision with passion. Yeah, like which is really the cool. The idea that you actually care. Like, could you imagine Ron Johnson inviting yeah. people to his apartment? No. Like, he would never fucking do that. Yeah, I'm not inviting the peasants into my marble <laughs> castle with their peasant right. slime. With a big wrought iron gate. <laughs> uh, archers? Yeah. Take aim! Fire, Fire. upon the masses! <laughs> <laughs> Burn the peasants. <laughs> <laughs> Throw them into the moat. <laughs> That'll show them to lodge complaints against J.C. Penny. <laughs> Go watch our J.C. Penny episode for more information. <laughs> what do you do when the peasants develop pox? Burn the peasants. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, quote, we were able to explore different neighborhoods in each one of those cities. It gave us a blueprint and data for where to open up stores, Blumenthal says. It's like a brilliant idea. Yeah. Like while he's driving while he's driving the uh the the Warby Parker fun bus around the cities, he's like taking the time to explore like, okay, where would where would be a good place to open a Warby Parker location in these cities? Yeah, like he's like, a, you know, a genuinely clever person who's looking for his opportunity. Well, it's like all of these guys have MBAs, yeah. right? They all went to business school together. Yeah. They're just, they're buddies. It's like buddies starting a donut shop together, <laughs> but they're, they're, they all have like, <laughs> they all have like 12 years of business education. And so they're, yeah. <laughs> they're like buddy cop movie involves them starting an incredibly successful, <laughs> like direct consumer retail company. Yeah. Direct consumer donut company. Yeah. In April of 2013, Warby Parker opened its first in New York City, Soho. Huh. Quote, when we started, we had a very strong point of view about brands in general, and of course, in particular, our brand. We would start talking about branding, about the branding we created. It was very deliberate, but it was still verbal diarrhea. <laughs> I like so, the use of the word diarrhea. Go on. Right. Excellent use of the word diarrhea. <laughs> in a non scatological context right it was just verbal diarrhea yeah <laughs> uh quote we'd get in front of an editor or a writer and we'd just talk we'd do desk side at vogue and bring our collection of frames and a bunch of photography from our first shoot but there was <laughs> so much that we wanted to get out uh there was just so much that we wanted to get out around building a lifestyle brand about our price point about how we were selling by going online directly to consumers the fact that we had this home try-on program, that we had a uh, buy a pair, give a pair program, the dynamics of the industry, we were so excited to tell that story, but it yeah. was a long one, and multifaceted. <laughs> Worthy of diarrhea. For, if we spoke for too long, our audience's eyes would just glaze over. <laughs> After style and fit come value and customer experience. Customers want the highest quality product for the price point. And at Warby Parker, that means selling $95 glasses made with premium materials that are traditionally sold for hundreds of dollars, all while providing amazing customer services. Yeah. Third comes our buy a pair, give a pair program. While customers certainly love the fact that we give back, at the end of the day, it's not a critical factor in deciding whether or not to buy a pair of glasses. Mm. Today, Warby Parker is estimated to be valued at over a billion dollars. Damn. So, like, up there with WeWork at its peak. Yeah. Or, no, 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 not not quite WeWork at its peak, but, like, WeWork at the end of everything. Right. Yeah, but, like, Warby Parker is actually, like, a really sustainable, good... It's a very sustainable business model. Yeah, because, uh, like, I'm sure it's... And it's much easier to scale than, like, a real estate company. This brings us to the true topic of this week's episode. <laughs> it wasn't Warby Parker? <clears throat> Direct-to-consumer, or DTC, refers to selling products directly to customers, bypassing any third-party retailers, wholesalers, or any other middlemen. Yeah. 
DTC brands are usually sold online and online only and specialize in a specific product category. Some of the most well-known examples being Casper, Everlane, Harry's, Outdoor Voices, Away, Dollar Shave Club, and Warby Parker. Mm. Some direct-to-consumer brands have opened a limited number of physical retail spaces in adjunct to their main e-commerce platform mm. in what has been called a, quote, clicks-and-mortar business model, which <laughs> I hate that yeah. so much. Yeah, whoever came up with that should be put on trial. <laughs> Just like... Like a like an old Salem witch trial. Right. They get tied to a stake. Yeah. They get tied to rocks, and if they float, they're fine. Right. You, if you I, float, I you diagnose, get to live. I diagnose you with writing an annoying Vox article. Or no, wasn't... Didn't they, like... If the witches would float, they would be put to death? Uh, so they just no, die it, either way? No, it was... It was uh, if they floated, then they weren't a witch. That doesn't make sense. Well, it's because they tie you to rocks, and of course you're going to die. Like, they yeah. always die, so of course it's like, ah, we were correct, they were a witch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, do so, that Do that to the, the guy who came up with clicks and mortar. <laughs> he deserves that. Sounds fair. <laughs> So, before we dive in, let's talk about the advantages and disadvantages of the direct-to-consumer model. Okay. Let's start with the advantages. Quote, uh, DTC requires focus on customers, which in turn creates much higher brand loyalty, which is like the holy grail of modern commerce. Yes. Right? Every, modern business people never fucking shut up about brand loyalty. Ugh. <laughs> <sighs> Uh, direct-to-consumer is cheaper, uh, meaning, like, okay, you have fewer employees, lower rent, there's no need to establish a physical store, and so it makes the initial overhead and general costs much, much lower. Yeah, you don't have to uh, deal with, like, these these middlemen who just jack up the price. Well, you don't, have, you don't have to hire middle managers, you don't have to hire salespeople, you don't have to hire people to, like, build, refurbish, and maintain locations, you don't have to pay rent. Yeah. Right, that's a huge expense. You know, you don't have to worry about. It's one of the biggest expenses. That's like a third of your business. Like, you you cut out like all of like all of your like basic land expenses and most of your labor expenses. That's like fifty percent of your business. Yeah, like that's most of your fixed income per month. Uh, DTC is easier to administer. The recording of inventory, shipments, and general transactions are all centralized right mm. so you can have like you can have like a team of just three or four people handle it yeah and you control the data you know exactly how much you're selling exactly evolve from there and it's all in one place so you're, you don't have like it's you know you don't need like regional managers or anything yeah not necessarily right uh and because of all this because it's so lightweight dtc grows much much faster yeah now the disadvantages uh, DTC has increased, has massively increased risk. It exposes the business itself to risks that are normally borne by uh, the wholesalers and retailers. Right. Okay. For example, a business has to concern themselves with shipping, labeling, and cybersecurity. Mm. Um, and DTC increases the complexity of the supply chain enormously, mm. as the company is now in charge of getting the product. Uh, not just to the retail outlet, but to directly to every individual customer's front door. Okay, yeah, so they have to deal with, with shipping, getting it there, making sure it doesn't break on the way, all that kind of stuff. All Like, all the tracking and all the details that you need with, like, whatever company that you're contracting to actually get the, the packages from point A to point B, which... So, all of this combined is a company that is sort of, like, initially much easier to run but scales not just arithmetically like it's not just a straight line it scales exponentially yeah uh, in complexity right so you dtc is something that starts easy but can very very quickly become unmanageable yeah like if you if you aren't on top of that shit like it can get out of hand because basically the only way that you have to actually make money is to get a product to a person's door and if mm. you can't do that 
you've now lost that product. Right. Okay. Right? It's like yeah. that is the only source of income you have. Yeah, exactly. So, soon after Warby Parker's success, copycats began cropping up. Of course. But what no- but what none of these copycats understood was Warby Parker already occupied the number one spot in the customer's mind, mm. and to date, had done everything in their power to keep those customers. Yeah. Al Reese explains this phenomenon, quote, Moving up the ladder in the mind can be extremely difficult if the brands above have a strong foothold and no leverage or positioning strategy is applied. Yeah. And uh, this is from an amazing, amazing article by uh, Maya Kassoff for Medium. Nice. <clears throat> Even if you don't know who Ty Hanley is, if you've probably spent if you've spent any time on Instagram, you probably know her company by osmosis. Mm. Outdoor Voices, with its millennial branding and muted pastel athleisure wear, is social media bait. Searching mm. the company's hashtag quote doing things, uh, surfaces images of young women, including Hanley, breezily bearing their midriffs while walking their dogs, hiking, or doing yoga, dressed in all dressed in Outdoor Voices color-blocked leggings, skorts, and sports bras. Hanley, who co-founded the company in 2012, at the age of 24, found herself in charge of what appeared to be a rocket ship. Within four years, she raised $64 million in venture capital funding for her direct-to-consumer startup, a then-newish breed of e-commerce company created in the image of Warby Parker, aiming to design a better version of an everyday product, selling it to consumers at a lower price, thereby retaining tight control over marketing, customer service, and the data feedback loop that would eventually enable it to usurp market share from legacy competitors. Yeah. In Hanley's case, those competitors would be giants like Nike and Lululemon. Wow. Like, just this random-ass 24-year-old was able to raise $64 million in VC and, sig- like, significantly dethrone Nike and Lululemon. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these companies just, like, they don't have, like, they don't understand the social media landscape as much. And so, yeah. like, that's that's their, like, Achilles heel sometimes is, like, someone who's just, like can just make Facebook ads and they understand Facebook and Instagram really well. And they're just able to like unseat these giants just because they, they get like what their age group really cares about. Right. Kind of thing. They, they understand the market better. Yeah. She managed to woo J crew retail legend, Mickey Drexler to be chairman of her board. Wow. And when she, yeah. Uh, and when she relocated outdoor voices from New York to Austin in 2017, she quickly became the face of the city's hot emerging startup scene landing on the cover of Inc. Magazine and the subject of a 10,000-word New Yorker profile. By all accounts, everything was perfect. (laughs) Until a few weeks ago, when a very different picture emerged of Outdoor Voices. Oh no! The Business of Fashion reported that for all of the startup's apparent growth and cachet, including 11 stores in cities like LA and Nashville, the company, quote, continues to lose money on customer acquisition. (laughs) Oh no! According to VOF, Outdoor Voices was hemorrhaging up to $2 million a month last year oh, on an annual on annual sales of around $40 million. What are they spending so much money on? Its executives also seem to be bailing out on a company in a tailspin. Oh, God. Ah. Oh, God. Hold the on. wings are gone. We should ah. be fine. The new president... Hanley had managed to lure last year from Nike lasted only a few months and Drexler left the board. The startup was able to get a new cash infusion from the company's investors, but at a lower valuation than previous rounds. Mm. On February 25th, CEO Hanley sent a Slack message to her hundreds of employees, quote, with heartbreak, I have tendered my resignation. A Slack message. Oh God. A Slack message. Millennials, am I right? Like, the fact that it's a Slack message, like, you just know that that was in, like, a panic. Yeah, exactly. You don't send a Slack message to tend to your resignation. That's not, like, that is is the wrong use of that platform. 
Right, just notifying everybody of my resignation via Discord. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's basically, like, Slack is just Discord for business. So it's the right. same exact thing. In the wake of her departure, she wrote, there would also be layoffs, and uh, Cliff Mor- uh, Moskowitz, president of a fashion-oriented private equity firm, would take over as interim CEO. Hmm. The news could be interpreted simply as an unfortunate, isolated incident an inexperienced founder who mismanaged her way into overspending. Mm. But for anyone familiar with the harsh realities of the DTC model, it's an affirmation affirmation of something much more fundamental. Mm. Once you get past all the shiny objects in DTC categories, uh, the plump VC rounds, the sleek sans-serif designs, the the experiential storefronts in hot retail locations, the podcast ad blitzes, it turns out it's extremely difficult to actually make the economics work. Ever since the godfather of the DTCs, Warby Parker, emerged on the startup scene in 2010, venture firms have funded hundreds of startups trying to mimic that model. From the makers of hearing aids and strollers to paint and erectile dysfunction medication. Yes, I've heard all these ads on podcasts. Yes, no, it's like this... This is really an episode about every company that's ever advertised on a podcast, because that's all of these ones. According to eMarketer, there are now more than 400 DTC brands. Wow. Since 2012, consumer brands have raised more than $3 billion. (laughs) Digiday reported last year with about half of that capital raised in 2018 alone. Wow. VCs like Forerunner Ventures' Kristen Green have made names for themselves by betting big on early DTC success stories, including Dollar Shave Club, Glossier, and the original Warby Parker. Right. Other investors, like Nikki Quinn at Lightspeed uh, and Caitlin Strandberg at Lair Hippo, have also aggressively entered the DTC fray, funneling money that typically might go to a fast-growth software company uh, into the next uh, Warby of X. Yes. Consumer startups like uh, Allbirds, Everlane, and Rothy's. Mm. We're now just starting to see how chaotic this boom has been all along. Even before the Outdoor Voices revelation, the past few months have exposed major cracks in the DTC business model. Yes. As several high-profile venture-backed DTC startups have struggled and others have completely closed their doors. Excellent. The investors bankrolling these companies are discovering one thing in common, that most of their money is going to expensive and ever-rising customer acquisition costs via Google, Facebook, and Instagram. Right, right. As one DTC investor has put it starkly before, customer acquisition is the new rent. (laughs) Oh, so you're just swapping out one expense for another one? Because here's the thing. If you have a brick-and-mortar location you get like you get advertising money just by existing right right right. like you your existence in the world is an advertisement for your company yeah especially if it's like if it fits the market of that location really well yes exactly but if you're a direct-to-consumer brand you don't you can't do that so Mm. everything is marketing your entire Ah. business model relies on nothing but marketing Right. If people don't know you exist, they can't, like, they will never learn about you. Yeah. How would they? they, they right. There's no way for them to, like, accidentally wander in and see your office. Right. They just, like, type in random letters into their keyboard and just find their website or something. Right, right. Even after all these startups get on the treadmill of paying digital rent, they're then finding themselves also paying actual rent. After all, the most effective billboard is an outdoor L.A. luxury mall or an expensive Soho storefront, which can cost some $60,000 a month. Holy shit. Perhaps the original mistake of the DTCs wasn't in their vision, but in their decision to take the venture capital in the first place, now under pressure to grow even faster and at a greater scale than they otherwise would have had to naturally, they're being confronted with what happens when growth slows down. The cash starts running out, and investors are expecting their returns. Yeah, investors start getting antsy. (laughs) Hey, uh, where's my money, buddy? (laughs) We gave you some money. Where's my money back? This brings us to Tina Sharkley, 
the co-founder and CEO of Brandless, a home goods DTC that arrived on the scene in 2017. The San Francisco startup that aimed to upend Target as uh, uh, that aimed to upend Target set up shop on the mega retailer's home turf in Minneapolis, along with poaching a couple of its merchandising execs, with the audacious goal of selling private label groceries and some other home goods uh, at a flat price of three dollars each. What? Brandless's rationale. <laughs> If it was going to spend big on marketing bucks to get a customer through the door, that customer would have had would have many reasons to keep coming back with its hundreds of other affordable products to purchase, along with raising $52 million from investors like Google and Cowboy Ventures. In 2018, the startup raised an additional $240 million <laughs> from SoftBank. Uh, Adam Newman. Adam Newman. <laughs> Hey guys, remember me? <laughs> Episode eight. Just, hey, what's up, dudes? <laughs> How are the vibes here? <laughs> Whoa, three dollars. That's that's a pretty choice price, bro. I like how I did like a high pitched like cartoon character voice, and you did like a California surfer dude voice. But like, I don't think either of those is what Adam Newman sounds like. Right, he's from New. I mean, he's like he's from Israeli. New York. He's Israeli. Right, yeah, he's Israeli and from New York. Yeah, but. Our impressions are more accurate. Yes. Fuck you. Well, he has he has the energy of a guy that sells talismans out of a van. <laughs> like, hey, man, the essential oils are baked in, man. <laughs> I coated them on with my tongue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't can't even mention Adam Newman without getting a whole bit out of it. Yeah, I mean, he's the endless wellspring of of material. It is perhaps not surprising to learn that things did not end well for the company. Yeah. What is it about SoftBank? It's like dooming these companies from the start. Like, who knows, honestly? I like SoftBank is one of these SoftBank is one of these firms that's like so big that they can do they can hit every niche. So even if their ventures like completely collapse they can get in on the whole bankruptcy vulture scheme thing and yeah. just suck money out of you like they'll make money either way yeah they don't care brandless found itself contending with the problems so many dtcs seems to grapple with at this stage of their growth but namely uh the dawning realization that building a customer base from scratch is actually quite hard and incredibly expensive yeah yeah <laughs> there you go <laughs> Right, that's uh, that's a summary of DTC. You can't oh, just man, like no. say we're a company, we're the best, and then people are just gonna flock to it out of nowhere. <laughs> like it's like like even if you're doing like ads online, like you know how like saturated that market is. You know how many companies are trying to get people's attention. Exactly, and we will talk about that later. But like contrast that to Warby Parker, who like spent four years advertising and never like hadn't even sold glasses yet yeah like yeah. it was this they did so much fucking groundwork for this model right there's a reason that dtc companies market on facebook facebook ads are cheap to set up and they let you target a specific audience mm. the problem however is that channels like facebook have grown more saturated and therefore more expensive there you go now Everyone is armed with the same millions of dollars in funding. They're all targeting the same users, and they're all driving up each other's marketing costs. It's like, man, like we're going for like a, a like an underserved market, man. Like twenty-five to thirty-four year old white women in America, man. Like you know, like there's like it's an untapped really market. Different. <laughs> it's an untapped market. It's like all these clones just like speaking in unison like we're going after yeah. a new market man 25 to 34 year old like per, like professional white women making $90,000 plus a year. <laughs> right. We're we're going uh we're going for a uh, young upper crust like upper crust young men with exposable income and yeah. listen to a lot of podcasts. Yeah, right. It's like no, like you're just like you're just like parroting everyone else, right? Well, it's and it's there's something kind of beautiful about the fact that like all of these 
all these DTC startup idiots funneled into the same marketing channels and yeah. just ramped up the cost for all of them enormously. It's like, hi, welcome <laughs> to Game Theory. This is called the Prisoner's Dilemma. Yeah, You're, it's literally like, it's like a bidding war. Like, they're just driving up the price. Right. Well, okay, I, I, don't, I don't actually cover it in this episode, but, like some people kept mentioning like why do all these brands like why do all their advertisements look the same yeah. like they're all these like very clean simple like you, you know there's that uh cliche of like the the light xylophone and ukulele music as yeah. somebody explains to you what a casper mattress is yeah and it's like so it turns out all of the like 40 percent of these dickheads are all using the same marketing firm yeah Yep. They're they're all going through the Red Antler marketing firm in New York, which <laughs> uh, who specialize in this sort of like sleek like you know, sleek, clean, minimalist design. Yes. But the thing with Red Antler is that part of their contract for working with you is they take a zero they take a zero risk stake in your company. <laughs> so Red Antler made fucking bank oh, off yeah. of this. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, I mean, I can, you know, like, uh, like, as you know, like, I'm, this is a very personal thing for me because this is my job. Like, I work for a marketing firm. I right, make Facebook right. ads. Right, you work for a marketing firm. But the thing is, the Facebook ads that do the best are the ones that look the worst. <laughs> right. <laughs> because, the ones that look craziest. Yeah. It's like the ones that look like they were made by someone who doesn't really know how to use an editing program. Right. Like, if they were made in MS Paint. Yeah. Those are the ones that people, because they look real, because people are tired of having the same clean, you know, modern font with ukulele music and, like, you know, bright pastel colors. Like, people the, all uh, see through that, and people keep throwing money at it. Like, the 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 word that they used in the Red Antler article was blanding. <laughs> exactly. There's, it's like, we're really going to shake things up and, that like, going to really break through the marketplace with pastel colors and ukulele music and, like, right. a it's really like, clean logo, man. Man, this, the smartest thing that we could do for our logo is make it really boring and, like, <laughs> like, make it just slide directly out of the customer's mind as soon as they click away. It's like, if you want to make a good ad, like, find colors that will intentionally be hard on customers' eyes. Well, so gaudy and like loud and like like choose color combinations that would like would a like an interior designer would be caught dead use wouldn't be caught dead using that's how you right. break through like be hostile towards your customer base like <laughs> like grab them by the throat and say buy this product you fucking moron like like this is how like be aggressive truly aggr that's how you make a good right. ad well because it's not it's because you get the effect of like like you get the effect of like grabbing the customer by the throat and shaking them a bunch but then you also get the added be benefit of everyone watching this happen yeah exactly and they remember your brand because it was weird and aggressive right. uh, marketing software ad stage analyzed its facebook uh, impressions data and found that the median cost per click for facebook newsfeed ads has ridden has risen from 43 cents during the second quarter of 2018 to 64 cents during the second quarter of 2019. That is a 50% increase in price. Yeah, cost per click. That's like you're right. paying 64 cents for someone to click on your and usually not buy anything. Right, it's like, and just like, imagine how mad you would be if you went to go fill up your car and suddenly gas cost six like fifty percent more. Yeah. Like now instead of forty dollars a tank, it's sixty dollars a tank. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's a huge like, jump. Imagine imagine if bus fare suddenly jumped from three dollars to seven dollars. Yeah, that would like ruin a lot of people. Yeah, that would ruin people. Yeah. Da -da 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 -da. By early 2019, Brandless found itself unable to honor its initial promise and increased the price of some items to $9 and laid off 13% of its staff. Ding. So kind of like getting rid of the thing that they were, their selling point was in the first place. Hmm. It's like the dollar store. How... It's like the dollar store, you know, starting to charge $10 for things to make money. It's like, right. It's not a no. dollar store anymore. 
Well, it's like it's it's like fucking uh, movie pass. Yeah, <laughs> just like unlimited doing... movies. Just kidding. Right. That doesn't work for us. <laughs> now you have to pay a monthly subscription, and you have to pay a premium price to see yeah. movies, and only like three normal. movies a month. <laughs> you can't see the same movie twice. Oh uh, my god! So yeah, that's gonna go well for Brandless. Yeah. By by early 2019, Brandless. Uh, I just read that. <laughs> In a move almost verging on parody, he pivoted Brandless to selling CBD products, along with pricier branded products. Um, CBD. <laughs> CBD. Sell uh, weed. Weed that doesn't work. <laughs> that weed doesn't that's work. a place- placebo. Placebo weed. God. Oh my god. I've taken CBD like eight times, and it's like, it has... Like it, it doesn't do anything. Right. It's just it's useless. It's nothing. Yeah. It's it's a sugar pill, guys. Right. It's a sugar pill. You fucking you rich millennials saying CBD changed your life. No, it didn't. <laughs> it's like saying Advil changed your life. Yeah. Like, <laughs> didn't. CBD didn't change your life. Last fall, uh, Rittenhouse and Brandless would try to get get into major retailer stores, shifting away from its online-only business model. Instead of disrupting Target, the company suddenly wanted to be sold in places like Target. <laughs> Sell weed. <laughs> Target. Target. A common trend among many once-digitally-only DTCs, but even this never ended up happening. In January, Brandless announced that it would shut down. Because, <laughs> like, if you're a DTC brand, your entire business is based on the fact that you're, like, a recognized, distinguished brand. Yeah. And so Brandless showed up in the market space, like, it's like, yo, what's up, everybody? We're, we're going to sell, like, we're going to sell what branded products are, like directly from wholesalers so they're they're not going to have any branded material we're going to be selling the same shit that yeah. all these premium brands sell but like at a vastly reduced premium and they're just they're all going to be under the brandless yeah. brand and you're not like not in stores only online so we're going to start selling them in stores yeah exactly we're going to give like, you no reason to remember why you should buy from brandless it's right, just, just going to escape your memory immediately it, completely compromising their like every necessary foundation to their business yeah the reason the business exists while the fundamental economics of brandless's pitch never seemed sustainable the one sound piece of its strategy at least in theory was going after that repeat customer yeah the reality is most high profile dtcs have built their brands on a singular product whether it's warby with glasses casper with mattresses or away with suitcases a month before Brandless went out of business, suitcase startup Away found itself enmeshed in a PR crisis. Months after achieving unicorn status by raising $100 million in funding at a $1.4 billion valuation, yeah. The Verge detailed allegations against the Instagrammy startup that its CEO, Steph Corey, had created a sweatshop culture within the company. Great. Corey. Corey apologized, and after a... <laughs> I'm really sorry. sorry for creating a sweatshop environment in my company. Oh, I'm sorry. Me too. Corey apologized, and after a series of public is she staying or leaving back and forth, she remained on as CEO, alongside the company's new co-CEO, Stuart Has- Hazelden, an exec from Lululemon. <laughs> While the press latched on to a founder who had become toxic under pressure, that was hardly the company's most vexing problem. With a total of one point, uh, or $181 million in funding, and primarily one product to sell, how could the startup possibly be able to meet the expectations for investor returns? Yeah, I'm on the edge of my seat. Most people only need to purchase a suitcase once every five to ten years. <laughs> That's not a repeat customer scenario. By the time they need to buy a new piece of luggage, they've forgotten where they bought their first piece of luggage. Despite the many color variations of its aluminum suitcases (laughs) and bags, the product itself, like many in the DTC space, is still only incrementally better than a Samsonite or Travel Pro. Yeah. 
Right. <laughs> yeah, it, like, there you go. It's like, these all these idiots funneled is like, oh, DTC, DTC, without understanding shit about what DTC is or why it's useful or profitable. Just one of these things that becomes a buzzword in the venture capital world, and people are like, oh. Yeah, and, and it's... That's the same thing with CBD, like... It's just like acronyms that people get. It's like, oh, we gotta invest in CBD. Throw money at it. Throw money at it. Fucking blockchain. Like, yeah, right. It none just of you know what thing. the fuck blockchain is. No, like you ask any venture capital dude. It's just like, they just read the whatever times. It's like, oh, uh, I want to be cool. Uh, I gotta I, invest I, in blockchain. Invest in whatever they're talking about on the front page of Business Insider this week. Yeah. <laughs> they said I got invest in DMT or something. Uh, I we're, I have a new startup. It's it's CBD, but with cabbage. <laughs> it's just cabbage, it's with <laughs> shoes. De- de- okay. It's called uh, cabbage. Cabbage. There's a silent gh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, God. It's like beyond parody. I know. Yeah. So away is trying to recast itself as something much larger than it actually is. <laughs> it's it's not just a brand. It can breathe. It can love. It can it, fuck. It can take off take up golf. It's learning to paint. It's getting involved in saving the rainforest or whatever. <laughs> or whatever. Whatever it gives Corey it and Kof- Corey and co-founder Jen Rubio describe Away as a, quote, travel company in order to lure expensive customers back. Away now has many uh, adjacent venture-funded expansions in the works, skincare and supplement lines, along with uh, travel wear made of more functional, comfortable fabrics. Quote, we're ready to start taking action to figure out uh, how else Away can play a role in not only what uh, what you use to pack, but what other kinds of products you might need to bring with you. Rubio told Harper's Bazaar soon after its latest funding round. Hmm. So they're like, oh, we sell soap now. Whatever. Travel. Even though even though the DTC the DTC model relies on like only selling a specific kind of yeah. product that you become known for, uh, we sell soap now and suitcases. Just you know. feels so desperate. Because it is. Wait a Evan. second. <laughs> it's a desperate <laughs> Active. Oh, I'll figure it out. Ah, uh, oh, gosh, man. In that conversation, Rubio optimistically noted the startup's other ambitious expansion plans, opening a whopping fifty new stores over the next fifty Why? few years. So, Why? so, so a retail company. You're starting a retail yeah. company that sells suitcases and soaps. You're just starting a worse retail company. Right, you're just starting a shitty retail startup. Yeah. <laughs> the reason you were founded was to be a DTC version of of the travel, you know, retailer, not to be just another travel retailer, which isn't a good idea to start. No. And what this really means. Customer acquisition is so challenging in the first place, they need to spend an incredible amount of money to convince customers to come through the door. And then, even more money to keep them there. Hmm. When Casper filed its S1 in January, analysts, investors, and business nerds descended on the document like vultures. And this is fun. Yeah. Not only was it a a precarious moment to take a startup public, it was the first time anyone uh, could actually access the raw numbers under the hood of a DTC. Mm. Quote, The economics work better if Casper sent you a mattress for free, stuffed with $300. <laughs> Jabbed NYU Stern marketing professor and tech doomsayer Scott Galloway. The same guy um, who... T- uh, Scott Galloway is the same guy who took apart the Juicero in our Juicero episode. I will, the His job is being a tech doomsayer. He's doing yes. the Lord's work. Who's like... I... I think we've I think we've found our market niche, Evan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's us and Scott Galloway. Yeah, exactly. Just saying why things are not gonna work and taking <laughs> glee in their demise. <laughs> right, just sort of taking pot shots at things in the business world. See, I was right. <laughs> 
Oh my god. Quote, This appears to be Casper's business, tweeted number-crunching Atlantic columnist Derek Thompson. <laughs> and his little, like, I picture it like a late 90s, like, hacker dude. Like, he's got, like, four monitors, and he's, like, spinning around in his swivel chair. <laughs> right. It's playing, like, pounding techno music in the background. <laughs> Alright, buckle up, everyone. <clears throat> Buy mattress at $400. Sell at $1,000. Refund slash return 20% of them. Keep $400. Then spend 290 of that on ads and marketing and 270 on administration. Lose $160. Repeat. There you go. That's Casper's business model. <laughs> Wash, rinse, repeat. Like suitcases, mattresses are also products with incredibly long life cycles. Yeah. You're no more likely to buy a new mattress any more frequently than you would a new suitcase. Like Away, Casper, with its expanded mission of becoming the, quote, Nike of sleep. Yeah. Is now <laughs> what does that even mean? Uh, is now selling dog beds and glow lights. Oh. <laughs> we, are the Nike, we are the Nike of dog sleep. <laughs> or the Nike of glow sticks. What's worse, Casper has some other 175 other online mattress competitors. Yeah, like, I actually recently bought a mattress from one of these companies. It was uh, Nectar Mattresses. Ah, uh, yes. And all these companies have a standard one-year tryout period. So what you're, you could just rent these mattresses. Like, right! There's no, like, <laughs> there's no reason to, like, I don't understand. How is this sustainable? Right, just, like, go to another company and then rent another mattress. Yeah, like, I get for a the... really good mattress for a year, and then I just get another one for free. Like, wh what is your incentive, other than people I... just being lazy? Dude, my favorite fucking part about late capitalism is all of this, like, the f it's when shit turns inside out so much that, like, business or li businesses are literally, like, paying consumers to use their products for free. I mean, like, like, I think MoviePass is the, the, like, the, the poster like, child? peak of this. Well, paying people to see movies. It just shows you how, like, utterly, like, insane capitalism has become now that, like, there's no more, there's no more, like, physical markets to expand into. Yeah, yeah. Like, right, it's just so saturated and, like, everything has been done. So like, many times. We are out of market space to grow into. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we gotta like, like invent and, new ways of <laughs> well, and so, branding. Well, and so the the system is just eating itself constantly. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's cannibalizing itself and spitting out these weird little malformed homunc like capitalist homunculi that just give it's yeah, like, just stab themselves and like <laughs> it's it spits out these weird little capitalist like like abortion homunculi that all it's just they've managed to create a machine that gives you free mattresses every year yeah it's like little homunculi that have like a self-destruct button on top of their heads right they're just like kill me yeah it's like mr meeseeks from casper's s1 we learned that in the first nine months of 2019 it had a net loss of 67.4 million dollars after losing 93.2 million dollars in 2018 and 73.1 million dollars in 2017 we're growing it's warning to investors the company may never become profitable like I don't under what what's the point of making a company then right it's like why hemorrhage money at such an impossible rate then it's like these investors are just throwing money at companies just to throw just to kill time like they're not trying to make get rich they're already rich right it's it's this whole thing of like once wealth has accumulated into a specific class of people this is like pocket change to them yeah like 73 million dollars is nothing to them yeah it's just like throwing like, okay they know they're gonna lose money if if you if I had a billion like okay, if you had a thousand dollars, spending like spending two dollars on something is nothing. Right? Yeah. That's whatever. If you have a billion dollars, spending two million dollars on something is exactly the same. 
right? It's just it's just scaled up. Like you're not yeah. gonna lose sleep over two dollars. Why should Jeff right. Bezos lose sleep over two twenty million? He right. has no reason because, to. No, because he's a fucking trillionaire, and that's the equivalent of spending two cents on something. Right. Exactly. When Casper finally went public on February 5th, reality came crashing down. The IPO target share price had been in the optimistic range of $17 to $19. Mm -hmm. Just before its public debut, however, the company slashed to a more modest $12 to $13. Which isn't, like, isn't a complete collapse. It means that there's still some like confidence in it but yeah like $13 is a fairly low stock price yeah definitely despite its private unicorn valuation of 1.1 billion dollars its debut share its debut share price of uh $14.50 only valued the company closer to 500 million Jeez. so uh that was a bit off yeah you know like cut in half yeah less than half yeah Quote, valuations are just moments in time, CEO Philip Krim told CNBC after its IPO. <laughs> Spoken hey, like a loser. Rocks in the stream, man. Just go with the flow. You We're going to die your, anyway. Who cares? You can never put your foot in the same IPO twice, my dude. <laughs> uh, if I took an IPO and replaced every board and nail of it part by part until I until every single piece was replaced. Is it the same IPO? <laughs> Today, its market cap is well below $350 million, oh, indicating man. that indicating that a less-than-credulous public market doesn't think its mattresses are worth all that much. Yeah. That steep gulf between how a DTC can be valued hypothetically and optimistically on the private market and the harsh realities of how the public markets value it's uh, of how the public market values it is haunting many DTC CEOs right now. Oh my God. The ones, go ahead. No, just that's like an image of a bunch of like DTC CEOs sleeping in there, and their Casper mattresses <laughs> tossing and turning. Oh God! Oh God! Oh, oh, oh God! Oh, oh, sub subpar valuation. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Uh, making I'm an a IPO. failure. Were you? What's wrong, honey? Did you have? Did you have the, the? Did you? Did you have the IPO nightmare again? Every night, uh, honey. I had a dream. I had a dream where our our public valuation was nearly half of what our private valuation was. It's okay, honey. You're not going to lose. I promise, you're not going to lose your your unicorn status. Here, just take some CBD. That always helps you sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, honey. He just palms like ten pills. <laughs> I can really feel these expanding my consciousness. <laughs> That's uh, the one startup that almost managed to avoid this fate is the razor startup Harry's. In mm. May of, of 2019, it cut a $1.37 billion deal to be acquired by Edgewell, the conglomerate that owns Schick. Wow. which is a respectable exit for a company whose private market valuation was approaching $1 billion. Yeah. And whose upstart competitor in the space, Dollar Shave Club, was bought by Unilever for a billion dollars three years ago in one of the business models' most uh, biggest success stories. Yeah. The deal looked like an ideal marriage. It would give Edgewell that millennial edge, the data, that uh, the marketing prowess, the R&D, that a stodgy old consumer products goods company needed. Yeah. And it would be an acceptable exit for Harry's, giving its co-founders a more powerful perch running Edgewell's entire North American business, which also includes brands like Playtex and Banana Boat. Wow. But as you can probably guess by this point, things didn't work out. Oh. It's become something of a trend for older legacy brands to buy up their nimble younger competition. Yeah. Over the past couple years, P&G has bought several of those DTC startups, including Bevel, First Aid Beauty, Native Deodorant, and This Is L. Yeah, I mean, in, what can you do when you can't beat them? Just give them, you know, a huge pile of money and hope they'll take it and go away or be yeah. absorbed into you. Yes. 
But in a decision that came as a shock to all, in February, Edgewell backed out of the deal after the FTC sued to block the sale, oh, no. claiming it, it, quote, posed serious harm to consumers and that the proposed combination would, quote, eliminate one of the most important competitive for- forces in the shaving sector. Hmm. Edgewell seemed to think pursuing the sale would be more trouble than it was worth. Its president and CEO, Rod Little, said in a statement that Edgewell moved away from the deal because it's, quote, uh, required investment of resources and time. Jeff Rader and Andy Katz Mayfield, the co-founders and co-CEOs of Harry's, are now pursuing legal action against Edgewell. Harry's hasn't commented on the nature of the litigation, but in a statement to Adweek, uh, but it said in a statement to Adweek that it will move ahead alone. <laughs> like Quote, ships. Well, what's like the quote from the big? The Le- I almost said the Big Lebowski when I meant to say the Great Gatsby. Anyway, what's the quote? <laughs> we are like ships <laughs> plowing onto the. Who cares? I read that eight years ago. Whatever. <laughs> Move on. Once again, we added will... nothing to the podcast. Anyway, all right. I didn't sleep well. It's okay. Continue. We will continue to do what we do best: develop, manufacture, and sell exceptional products at an honest price, and always put our customer first. Edgewell responded to Harry's intent to sue in an SEC filing in which it said, quote, such litigation has no merit. <laughs> uh, highly venture-backed DTCs largely have two pathways to, to uh, longevity and success. They can sell to an incumbent, much in the same way that uh, Bonobos and Jet.com sold to Walmart, or they can try their luck and go public. Yeah. The incumbents are willing to overlook... Uh, the less-than-ideal DTC economics because uh, what they're buying isn't a business model. It's Mm. other stuff, like data-informed decision-making. So when a company like Harry's that planned to exit by selling to another entity suddenly can't, what options remain? Hmm. Yeah. Without access to Harry's financials, it's impossible to know exactly how well the company is doing. But... It doesn't take a great leap of imagination to deduce that its growth is not quite that of a tech company. In late 2018, Fast Company reported that Harry's ranked a distant third in online manual shave sales. And so, to expand its new categories, it debuted Harry's Labs, an incubator to launch other DTC brands, both by itself with external entrepreneurs, potentially selling everything from cleaning supplies to pet care. (laughs) like what like i don't so harry's razor's response to being a failing dtc startup was to start a quote incubator which is quite possibly the douchiest term in the entirety of silicon valley yeah so they were going to start in response to them being a failing DTC brand, they were going to start a new division of their company to start new DTC brands. <laughs> it's like, you couldn't even do it yourselves. How are you going to incubate other brands, dummies? It's like, it's like when all these, like, it's like when all these, like, twice-divorced dickheads give you marriage advice. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> it's like, dude, you're an asshole. You don't know anything about, like, being married. Yeah. But, uh, Harry's needs this strategy to work, wrote Fast Company, emphasizing the $375 million in venture capital the startup had taken. They need to do it. Please help them. Particularly in the wake of Casper's IPO, it's difficult to imagine Harry's ever wanting to expose its numbers in an S1. If that's the case, how will Harry's investors ever get a satisfying exit? When Warby Parker's co-founders initially raised the first $2,500 while getting their uh, MBAs at Wharton, they couldn't have known that a decade later their company, which sells reasonably priced, stylish eyeglasses online, would be valued at $1.75 billion, or that an entire economy of startups would spring up in its image. Mm. For years, rumors of an IPO have circled Warby Parker, being the exemplar that Hundreds of companies have tried to emulate. With almost $300 million in funding, people will, st- will want to know how you'll exit, if you ever will. Mm. A little over a year ago, co-founder and co-CEO Neil Blumenthal told Business of Fashion that, quote, in terms of an exit, the most likely outcome is an IPO in the next couple of years. 
last week, Blumenthal brushed off that the idea that Warby needed to go public now. Quote, We've always viewed an IPO as a financing event. In an initial public offering, you raise capital, he told me. And at the moment, there's not an urgent need for capital. We've been able to raise capital as we needed in great terms in the private markets. When Warby needs cash, he explained, uh, he'll get it the most efficient way. If that's through an IPO, we'll IPO, he said. If that's through a private channel, we'll stay in private channels. Which, like, there you go. Like, Neil yeah. Blumenthal actually knows what he's doing. Right. Like, it's like you can tell that oh. he's very secure, like, through yeah. that quote. Right, exactly. It's like, it's always the guys that talk up, like, it's always the guys that are like, oh, big things are coming, that have fucking yeah. nothing in their back pocket, you know? Right. Neil Blumenthal, like, is is secure, and he has, you know, he has nothing to gain by being in a rush. Well, it's like, he's a business major. It's like, yeah. he's got a handle on the economics, you know? Yeah, exactly. Blumenthal didn't comment on specifics of Warby's finances, but he told me that Warby Parker has been profitable since 2018 and is still growing. Quote, yeah. growth accelerated from 2018 to 2019 versus 2017 to 2018, which was already at a pretty high clip, he said. Yeah. But like, all of the one product DTCs, even Warby needs a second act. Mm. As Bloomberg Businessweek reported in November, at various points, the company has contemplated everything from selling watches to selling its own sales software. More recently, though, it landed on a logical extension, the one, the $11 billion contact lens market. Mm. Uh, quote, bigger than, like, selling mattresses, Warby co-founder uh, oh. Dave Gilboa told Bloomberg. Oh, oh get fucked, Casper. <laughs> I'm not a rapper. <laughs> in November of 2019, it rolled out its new contact brand, lens brand, Scout, which already finds itself facing a slew of other DTC competitors, including Hubble, Waldo, and Simple Contacts. Blumenthal isn't just a startup founder. He's an investor, too. Between he and Gilboa, uh, the two have made enough investments in other DTC startups to create a sizable portfolio in a small venture firm, uh that a small venture firm would be jealous of, including baby food subscription service Yumi, organic tampon startup Lola, uh, plant startup Bloomscape, dental startup Tend, Silicon Valley's favorite wool shoes, All Birds, uh, and Blumenthal's wife's kids clothes startup, Rockets of Awesome. Yay. A few days after... Yay! Which, like, look at those brands, right? Those those products. Yeah. That's all shit that you... that you need to buy a lot of like that you need to buy regularly right tampons baby food plants right. dentistry yeah and then these all these companies and copycats spring up of like mattresses like luggage like things that most people don't think about buying ever like right. very rarely in their lives the dtc model relies on repeat customers yep. it relies on people coming back and spending their money again and again yep and those are all things that people come back and spend money on. Right. And then also, that's how you, like, if you do want to expand your product line, that's how you get that. Like, that's how that works is because you already have these people who are loyal to your brand. And they're like, you know, we're expanding into these other similar products. My, like, everyone's just going to start buying those too. But, like, when you right. have, it's... like, the away thing where you have no brand loyalty and then you start selling other things, like, you don't right. have a loyal you know like customer base in the first place right exactly it's like warby parker was able to expand into contact lenses because it makes sense yeah it works for their brand it's within their brand image but like if you sell suitcases you can't start selling soap or yeah, whatever or glow sticks or whatever right according to the wall street journal blumenthal's wife's four-year-old company has raised uh 49 million dollars and would retrench in order to, quote, focus on shifting away from high-paced growth and towards profitability. Hmm. In other words, the pivot every one of these venture-backed DTCs is frantically trying to make now. Yeah. One of the last questions I asked uh, Blumenthal before the news came out was whether the DTC model was actually sustainable for any of these companies, particularly for the venture-backed unicorns. Hmm. Quote, It's never been easier or less expensive to start a business, but it's also never been harder to scale one, Blumenthal conceded. 
hmm. which is probably the most damning thing a co-founder of a hyper-popular company with a heavy PR presence hovering on the phone t- will tell you. Yeah. And that wraps up our story. Oh, man, that was that was great. Like that was very like like you said educational. Like I learned a lot and like yeah. <laughs> just all these companies they just keep springing up. It's just so ridiculous. It's like and okay. The the thing that made me kind of tentative to do this uh this episode was that yeah. every single company I mentioned in this episode could be its own episode. Yeah. Well, I mean, you probably still could. I I honestly probably will because it's it's one thing to know that they failed, but every single one of where there are Silicon Valley dickheads, there are <laughs> hilarious stories. Yes. <laughs> like terrible ideas that get right. valued at over a billion dollars. And there's and there's always crazy personality conflicts and like wild stories about like the internal yeah. office culture and just just reading the copy for a lot of these companies yeah. is so funny. So yeah. we we will we will probably see a couple of these names again soon. Excellent. Some foreshadowing for future episodes. Yes. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter at D-A-O-C-Cast, Instagram at Desperate Acts of Capitalism, and Tumblr at DesperateActsOfCapitalism.tumblr.com. And remember, next week's episode is up right this moment on our Patreon. Join us there for bonus content, including an entire second podcast, Business Desserts, where Evan and I talk about current business news and whatever we feel like talking about that week. And thank you so much for listening. We love you. Big things are coming.